Well, guys, my name is Matt Young. I'm the worship pastor at Village Church, and um, every once in a while I have the privilege to open the Word with you, and uh, thankfully this morning that's one of the privileges that I get. I get to open the Word with you this morning. Other weeks you may see me. I know occasionally I'm here leading worship. I'm also leading worship, leading the musical times of worship um, at our Bartlett campus or involved on the production end over there too. So, um, But yeah, this morning I get to open the Word, and we are actually doing a two-week series. Pastor Tim's going to be out here next week. Um, to do the follow-up to this message, but on corporate worship. So two weeks, we're going to be diving into what corporate worship is. And, um, and you might be wondering kind of why would we do a sermon series on corporate worship? And there are, there are actually many reasons why it would be a beneficial thing for us to do. Um, but one of, the, one of the big ones, one of the things that I want to clarify before we dive into why corporate worship is um, just to say right off the bat that our corporate worship, our worship as a body of Christ, a bunch of believers in Jesus gathering together, is directly impacted by our individual worship. And so you can't, you can't disconnect the two. The Apostle Paul uses an illustration multiple times throughout the New Testament of a body, right? How our physical bodies, we've got arms, we've got legs, hands, feet, all that stuff. Each part of the body carries out a function, and so if one of our body parts, you know, ask Craig with his gallbladder lately, if it's not functioning right, it causes havoc in the rest of the body. And so the reality is, when, when it comes to our corporate worship, when we want to come before the Lord as one body to present worship unto him, to present his praises, to make much of the name of Jesus, uh, it's going to be impacted by each and every single individual person who makes up that body. And every single other person will feel that difference. There will be a palpable difference in the corporate worship of God's people based upon the individual worship. So if it starts there, we have to consider that. And so that's actually going to be part of the process, and we'll see how that plays out throughout the sermon this morning. Um, so why corporate worship? Well, there, there are multiple things um, in our society in particular where I think we need to consider shifting our perspective on some things. And so that was one of the reasons why we wanted to do this series. And so uh, some of the places where we need to shift our perspective is, uh, the first one is the reality that worship does not equal music. Um, and I, I'm not saying that music is not a part of worship. It absolutely is. Our, our musical worship, our singing the praise of Jesus is absolutely a part of our worship. But it's not the totality of what worship entails, right? We call these Sunday morning services worship services. It's more than just us singing and raising our voices to Christ. Not only that, but we see throughout the scriptures that uh, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then the apostle says, for this is your reasonable or your spiritual act of worship. And so our worship goes beyond just the singing of songs together, although that is a part of our worship. We do want to do that. We want to proclaim the name of Jesus. We want to sing our gratitude to him for what he's accomplished. But that's not all that worship is. And I think we, we kind of sell worship short, so to speak, when we, when we use those terms interchangeably, when we really, we should be a little bit more careful, myself included. You know, my title at the church, I'm the worship pastor. And so oftentimes, you know, people will think, and uh, a lot of my oversight has to do with the music ministry and the production side of things, but there's more to, to being the pastor over worship than just crafting the music for the service. Um, there's a lot more to it, and, and so I wanted to clarify that right off the bat, that we need to be careful when we say, man, worship this morning was incredible, or we say things like, man, the preaching was great, but the worship wasn't very good, because what we're actually claiming is, is more than what we mean to be claiming in those moments. So just being aware of the reality that worship and music are not interchangeable terms. The second thing, 
Second area where I think it would be helpful for us to consider shifting our perspective is in the reality that feelings do not equal fruitfulness. Now hear me carefully. Emotions are not a bad thing. All right, emotions, God has created us as emotional beings. Emotion is a part of what makes us who we are, right? It's, it's an important thing, but feelings do not necessarily equal fruitfulness. Um, the reality is that truth trumps emotional experiences when they're at odds, and we have to know that. And what I mean by that is um, there was someone recently, and I've experienced this many times, but recently someone said to me, that uh, they've got a friend, they don't know what to say. This friend is feeling called to divorce their spouse. And this friend is a believer, and um, there's, there's no biblical grounds for this divorce, but this person says, I've been praying about this, and I just feel in my heart that God's calling me to divorce my spouse. I can tell you right now, if that's a situation, that's not the Holy Spirit that's leading you to that decision because it contradicts the Word of God. So we have to be careful to not let our feelings usurp the authority of the Word of God. The Word of God is our authority, and that's what we need to stand upon. So if our feelings contradict that, then we need to keep that in check. We need to realize something's wrong. My heart's feeling one way, but the Word of God is telling me something different. I need to submit to the authority of God's Word, not what my emotions or my feelings are telling me to do. And another place where we see this playing out is in corporate worship services. Um, There are a lot of, of places where we're more about having an emotional experience than we are about a sincere encounter with the God of the universe. And again, don't hear me saying that emotions are bad. Emotions are not bad. But sometimes we'll hear things like, man, the Holy Spirit was so present during service this morning. True, it's true. But is he more present when we have these emotional feelings than he is other mornings when the body of Christ is gathered together? No, he's no more present then than he is in those other moments. Now, we might have these feelings of, of, you know, that that is the case, but the reality is he is with us. He is among us, and he is within us if we've trusted in Jesus. So when we gather together, whether we have an emotional high that morning or not, the Holy Spirit is still among us wanting to do a work in us. And so I think we have to be careful to understand that feelings do not automatically mean fruitfulness. Um, and another way that this can be helpful for us to look at is uh, if Sometimes people don't, I don't know, have you ever gone through seasons, I know I have, where you don't feel like reading the Word? Like, you're opening the Word and you're like, I'm just not feeling anything. I'm reading these passages and I have no feelings. You know, it's a lot easier to, to reject or, or stop pursuing the disciplines that we should be doing when our, when our feelings aren't being moved and we're not emotionally being compelled in those moments. But what if the Lord is desiring to bear fruit in our hearts through faithful and regular discipline. And we're so fixated on feeling God that we're missing out on the fruit that he wants to produce within us. We have to understand that the disciplines that we're to pursue, pursuing time in the word, even if we don't feel a connection, it's still fruitful, it's still valuable, it's still beneficial for us because we're saturating ourselves in the word. And there may be moments where you're reading a passage like, when is this ever going to be relevant? Fast forward two months later, or maybe the next day, and you'll be like, oh, I read something in the scriptures about that. 
That's the Holy Spirit working through those regular disciplines. And so, again, that's not to say that emotions are bad. Emotional experiences, those, those mountaintop experiences where we're worshiping together and you get like a shiver down your spine because of the truths that we're proclaiming together. I don't know, I experienced that, you know, with some sense of regularity, I guess. And those are wonderful moments. I have, there's no qualms with that. That's, that's great. But it doesn't mean that the Spirit is less at work in other moments. And we have to be very careful to understand that. And then the, the third and, and final thing where I think it's important for us to consider shifting our perspective or really just evaluating the reality of what influences us is the Western culture's influence on us individually and together. There are a lot of ways in which our culture influences how we function as a church. And that doesn't mean they're bad. We just need to be aware of these things, and sometimes they can be bad. For instance, the first thing, the value of individualism in our culture contradicts the biblical value of unity. What I mean by that is I've met many people that have left the church over a preferential thing, right? The style of music, I don't resonate with that. It's not what I want. It's not what I'm into, so I'm out. Or other things like that where, you know, my preferences aren't being met and and I need to celebrate who I am as an individual. Or sometimes it may be a sinful pattern in our lives. And as a society, we embrace these things and say, live your truth, you do you. We say these phrases as a culture That's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about dying to yourself to make much of Christ. The Apostle Paul says, uh, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That's a very different thing than putting your flag in the ground saying, I'm going to be an individual. No, it's dying to yourself for the cause of Christ, for the body of Christ, and being willing to take up that cross daily and consider the cost and lay that down. Next thing, a cultural value that, uh, that we have to be aware of is simply busyness with other priorities. There are so many times where, I mean, you can have a crazy week. We've all had crazy weeks. I don't know about you guys, but there are sometimes where Saturday nights I am spent. I'm exhausted. And there might be a temptation to say, now for me, it's my job, right? I have to be there on Sunday mornings. But there may be a temptation to say, ah, it's not a priority for me to gather with my brothers and sisters tomorrow morning to lift up the name of Jesus. I'm just too tired. The Lord understands. You know, I'll catch the content online later. Now look, there are situations where if you're sick, that kind of thing, we get it. There are seasons where it makes sense. But sometimes we're just running ourselves ragged by committing to all these other things and we're, we're, des- we're choosing and designating what our priorities are in those moments, right? Like we're saying, I chose this and this and this and this you know, whatever it may be. And they may not be bad things. Hear me. They may be good things that have, have beneficial impacts. But if they're pushing out the main thing, if they're pushing out the more important thing from your schedule, if you can't carve out the time for that, maybe time to reconsider your priorities and say, okay, what else can go so that I can make gathering with my brothers and sisters to lift up the name of Jesus a reality in my life? So be aware of that. And then finally, and this is probably kind of the umbrella statement for all of the culture's influence. We're consumers. We are shaped so much by our culture in the way that we consume things. What can I get out of this? And again, that comes back to the thing I mentioned earlier where people leave a church service because it's not their preference or the preacher didn't say what I liked or you know, this, that, or the other. We're looking at what can I get out of this as opposed to looking at how can I pour myself into this, which is what the Lord is calling us to do. As the body of Christ, we're called to serve one another. When you look at corporate worship, 
That's what it's about, serving one another. It's, I mean, it's about making much of Jesus, first and foremost. But we do that in the way we show our love towards one another, by serving one another. And so if we're coming into a church and we're saying, all right, this church isn't meeting all my needs. Well, why is that? Maybe we have expectations that others are here to serve us, but we see that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So we should follow in his footsteps. And rather than start with the question, what do I get out of this? we should start with the question, what's God calling me to give into this? Or how is God calling me to pour myself into the ministry here? And I gotta be honest, here at Village East, you guys have an incredible opportunity and so many of you take advantage of it because the needs are great to serve and many of you are serving faithfully and that's such an incredible thing and it's an incredible gift. You get to build relationships alongside of other people. There are so many blessings in doing that. And I think many of you have reaped the relational benefits of that as you have continued to strive to make serving one another a priority and making gathering together a priority. But be aware of some of these ways in which our culture can influence our thinking. And that's one of them, the consumerism. And and not only that, but it also, I mean, look at what's available to us informationally. There are podcasts online, articles, endless articles that can inform us on all these different things. Um, I met with someone, uh, happened to run into someone from the Bartlett campus last week. And, um, and I hadn't seen this person for a while. And, and they said to me, oh, pastor, I, I just want to let you know I'm doing great. I know you haven't seen me for a few months, um, but I'm listening to about eight sermons a day and I'm getting my podcast fill here and I'm listening to the worship music that I love and I just, I want you to understand, Pastor, I'm doing great. And I said, I'm glad that you're receiving these other ways to be fed. I said, but we miss you as the body of Christ. And I said, and it's great that you're getting that content, but how are you pouring yourself out to serve other people? I said, we miss you. I, I miss having you serve on this team in this way. Like, This person served, and they haven't been. I said, just so you know, that's leaving a hole. We're missing you. We would love for you to come back. Like, It was just an interesting conversation because the way he was looking at it, I need for you to know that I'm okay. I'm still walking with the Lord. But the reality is the call on our lives is beyond just the individual. This is why a corporate worship um, sermon series is important because it's not just our individual walks with the Lord have a direct impact on the rest. And so with that person no longer serving, no longer being a part of the ministry at the church, it does leave a hole. It does leave something that's missing. So we need to be aware of these things that there can be a tendency to say, I'm getting all that I need. I don't need to have that gathering of believers. But the reality is our spiritual well-being depends on this. Our spiritual well-being depends on being involved in the lives of one another, on serving one another. So keep that in mind, that that is a critically important thing. Um, In the history of the worship of Yahweh, corporate worship entails certain things. And so those are... Those things right there are, are some of the things to be aware of, some of the perspectives that we need to consider shifting or some of the just things that are going to impact us as we seek to worship the Lord. But understand that there are certain foundational elements in worship. You know, when I was uh, growing up, I, as a kid, I played all kinds of sports and I thought for a while I was going to be a professional athlete. And, um, you know, as I got a little bit older, I started to realize that's probably not the most practical thing for me to pursue as a career. So I was coming up, you know, thinking hard about what's my future as a 7th and 8th grader, and I thought, I don't think sports are going to be my, my future. I don't think, that's not a practical way to make a living. I should probably put those childish dreams aside and focus on more important things. So I got into high school, and I said, okay, I got four years before I'm going off to school or before I'm an adult. I got to figure out my life. 
So like, okay, what, what's a more practical thing that I could do? I mean, that, that, I got to put those childish things behind. So I decided when I got to high school, no more sports. I stopped all five sports that I was doing at that time because I needed to focus on my practical craft, which was to become a professional actor. Much more practical, right? <laughs> so I, I, that was my goal, though. I stopped playing sports because I said, I got to focus on my craft. So I dropped my sports, joined choir. Dropped my sports, picked up a play here. You know, tried to get into this and that agency here. You're like, it was intentionally pursuing that craft. And what's interesting is that also, as I made that decision, it freed up my schedule more because the sports were pretty much all consuming in middle school to dive in more fully in my youth group. So what I thought was so I could focus on my, my career trajectory as a professional actor, the Lord was using to open up a door for me to serve in music and in different dramatic elements in my youth group. And what I didn't know the Lord was doing was stirring my heart towards the body of Christ, towards the church in that time. But it's interesting because I had a lot of conversations with a lot of people at that time. And I would say probably, I'd say probably half the people in my youth group that would serve on the worship team with me, serve on these you know, theatrical endeavors with me, whatever it may be, um, they're no longer in the church. They've walked away uh, from being a part of the church. And they were at my side singing the songs with me. Sometimes they were on the platform singing the songs before the other people, leading us before the Lord in worship. And yet there was something that wasn't there with them. There was some sort of disconnect. And, and what, what I'm saying is when it comes to our corporate worship, there are certain things that the Lord requires of us. And I couldn't figure out why it was that, you know, what happened with them? Were they the seed that fell on the ground that was choked out by the world, you know, that when Jesus gave that parable? I didn't know what was going on, but these people seemed to be singing the songs. They were praying, they were reading the word. And yet there was something about what they were doing that was not having the impact on their hearts. And so what is it that can cause some people's worship to fall before the Lord and be an acceptable offering before him and for others to not do that? Why is it that he accepts the worship from some of us who are broken sinners, but not others? Because every single one of us is a broken sinner. Amen? Amen. I mean, I hope we can all admit that. That's, that's square one, right? Acknowledging, yep, I'm not perfect. I'm not flawless. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. So what is it that causes that? Amen. I am, for sure. So what is it that causes that? And we have to consider... What are the requirements that God has then for worship to be acceptable? And that's really what we're going to look at today, the requirements that God has for our worship to be acceptable before him. And so we're going to look at Old Covenant and New Covenant because there are some differences, and that's what we're going to dive into today. So the first requirement that we see that we're going to focus on is propitiation. Now, I know that's a, it's a theological term, but we're going to define it. It's an acceptable sacrifice offered for our sins before a holy God. An acceptable sacrifice offered for our sins before a holy God. So we, we know that our God is our creator. He created everything. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is holy. He is righteous. We know that we are sinners, right? We, that's, it's clear. We see that inclination in our own hearts. Um, if you don't, please talk to me afterwards. be happy to try and help you understand that you have a sinner's heart just like the rest of us. But we need this, right? We've sinned against a perfect and righteous God and our sin must be dealt with. And there needs to be an acceptable sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice. We see in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we may not understand that. In fact, I don't fully understand it, but I know that that's part of what the Lord has instituted from the very beginning. 
In fact, you go back to Genesis 3, and after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you see the Lord, he's, he's basically saying, here's the consequences to you, serpent, to you, Eve, to you, Adam. And then he says, after he gives those consequences, here's what's going to happen because you have sinned. He, it says in the text that he provided for them skins to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. See, before that, Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was no shame for them being naked. Now they were aware of their nakedness. They had a knowledge of there's shame associated with this. I'm supposed to be covered up in these areas. Well, the Lord sacrificed animals for them. Right there, there was bloodshed in order to provide a covering for their sin. So even from that point, we see that a covering for sin needed blood, needed a sacrifice of blood. So here's what we see in the Old Covenant. We'll start there. In Hebrews 10, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the text says the law has but a shadow. It was but a shadow, not the true form. So it's interesting because the original sacrificial system under the Old Covenant it was, it was never the point in and of itself. The point of the Old Covenant sacrificial system was actually to point to a future necessary sacrifice that was to come, to a better sacrifice, a truly acceptable sacrifice. And in case that wasn't clear enough that the Old Covenant was never able to make perfect, and that's a key phrase to look at at the end of this year, uh, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. So all these people in the Old Testament, they're coming to present their, their offerings, to present their um, sacrifices to the Lord, but it could not perfect them. Every year they had to do these things, year after year, shedding of blood of these animals. But here's the deal. Even that was not enough to forgive sins. We see in verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in case we think that the salvation in the Old Testament was different from the salvation in the New Testament, same reality for them. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Can't happen. So then this was a covering for a time, but it was designed for a different purpose. Again, the, de- the designation of the old covenant was to point to the greater new covenant that was to come. It was to point to Jesus. So that's what we see. Let's look then at the new covenant. And note some of the differences here, right? The old law is not able to make perfect those things. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Okay, so now, Hebrews 10, 12 and 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Then verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So before, remember it said sacrifices year after year? This says one for all time, a single sacrifice for sins that Christ offered. Already you see that it's better, right? It's already a better thing. It's not a yearly sacrificial system that they have to go through, sacrifice these animals to cover my sins for this past year. Oh, next year's coming. Let's find that blemish-free animal that I have that I can sacrifice. It wasn't like that. Once for all time, a single sacrifice. Then he sat down at the right hand of God. Then verse 14. For by that single offering that he did, he perfected, he has perfected, for all time, those who are being sanctified. I just, let that sink in. The reality that we have experienced because of what Jesus has done. If we have trusted in Jesus, this is the reality of what he has accomplished. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
I don't know about you guys, but I would love for my sanctification to be completed already. I, I get tired of, of battling the flesh, battling my sin, battling my pride, whatever it may be. I get real tired of that. And the Apostle Paul got real tired of it, Romans 7. But this is an incredible comfort to me to know that he has perfected those who are being sanctified. So look, this is what this means for us in reality. Positionally, before a holy God, we stand before him covered by the blood of Christ. We stand before a holy and righteous God completed in Christ, perfected in Christ. Perfected. So when we're battling against the sin, we're being made more like him in our sanctification. We are not living the perfect holy life that we are called to live yet. But when God, a holy God, looks at us, he sees his son's sacrifice. He sees his son's righteousness and his perfection upon us. What an incredible gift that is to have that given to us. Perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And so when you feel like you're battling your flesh and you're getting discouraged, go to the word. Go to the truth of God's word and see what it says about what Jesus has accomplished for you. Find comfort and encouragement in the reality that, wow, despite my sin, despite my brokenness, my selfishness, my pride, my arrogance, whatever it may be, I've been perfected in Jesus. God looks at me and sees the perfection of his son. God looks at you, brother and sister, and sees the perfection of his son as we are being sanctified. So the sanctification is still happening. We're still being made more like Christ, but we stand before God with a position of perfection because of Jesus. What a blessing that is for us to live under the new covenant and not the old. I was trying to think of something that could help illustrate this a little bit, and my mind was brought to a movie that I saw years ago. Um, It's a stupid movie. It's called Zoolander. Um, And in this movie, there's one scene that just stuck out to my mind. Um, Basically, Zoolander is about this dense uh, model, and he's, he's, he's got all this money, and they want to build a center. He wants to help. He wants to be humanitarian. So he has these people. He commissions them to build a building for him. And they bring him the model that they have constructed to show him this building. And he looks at the model, and he freaks out. He goes, how are we supposed to help kids read good if they can't even fit inside the building? What is this, a center for ants? He freaks out about it. So here's the point in me saying this, right? I know it sounds totally off topic, but it's not. This model was a scale model of the building that was to come. But this model only has a purpose in so much as it points to the actual building. In and of itself, a scale model is not the real thing. It's not the real building itself. It's helpful as they build the building to be able to look and see that. But it's designed in a way to point to the future building, right? This scale model, is, it serves a purpose, but its purpose is primarily as a reference for the real building that is to come. So keep that in mind. When we look at the Old Covenant, we look at the propitiation that we need. We need the covering of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins. The Old Covenant was designed, again, to point to Jesus to point to the future sacrifice that will be just as an architectural model is useful as a reference for the real building to come that's to follow. In the same way, the old covenant was designed in a way to point to the new covenant that Jesus would establish. So keep that in mind. Now the next requirement that we're going to look at this morning is mediation. So the process by which these sacrifices were made were through a mediator. God had established a priesthood, a priestly system. So the definition of mediation... Uh, the offerings of sinful people brought before a holy God 
through an acceptable representative on their behalf. And the acceptable representative is the important one because who determines whether the representative is acceptable or not? Who makes that determination? God, right? God is the one who appoints the people in the priesthood, right? He's the one who establishes it. So, in order for this representative to be acceptable for us, again, we're broken sinners, we're sinful people, we can't come before a holy God without mediation. And the priestly system, you were not allowed to just make your own offering. You had to go to the temple, present your, or the tabernacle, whatever it may be, present your offering, and, um, and then the priests would be the ones that actually carry out the offerings on behalf of the people. They functioned as a mediator between the sinful people and God. It was an acceptable thing for the Old Covenant. So let's look then at the passage here in the Old Covenant, Hebrews 5, starting in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So here's what you have in in verse 2 there. He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. You would almost think then that, what does that mean for Jesus? Because he wasn't beset with weakness. Is he able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward? Well, we see in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 that he is. It says, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. So he's taken on the temptation to a level that none of us have ever experienced because we all give in at some point. There's a breaking point for us. He never had that breaking point. So he's experienced that. He can sympathize because he knows the temptations that we've faced and he's experienced it even to a greater degree than we have. But Jesus isn't beset with weakness like this. See, their weaknesses allow them to deal gently with ignorant and wayward, but their weaknesses require that they sacrifice for their own sins as well. So they're not just going as a representative on behalf of everyone else. First and foremost, they've got to present for themselves. They've got to be made clean before a God, before a holy God. They can't just come and say, okay, I'm going to represent all you people today, make these sacrifices. No, they had to make sacrifices for their own sins first. But this was an acceptable covering to God under the old covenant only. So now let's look at the new covenant. And again, note the differences here. Hebrews 7, 26 through 27 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Do you see the difference? of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You see the benefits of the New Covenant in comparison with the Old Covenant? And I love that verse 26. You can go back one slide if you don't mind. Um, Look at what this says. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. This is the high priest that was fitting from the beginning. This is the high priest that we all needed, even at the establishment of the Old Covenant. Fitting high priest for us as broken sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. Well, let's look at the list. Very first word, holy. Well, that discounts every single other person on the face of the planet. Right there, you've eliminated anyone else. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There's only one 
person that fits that description. Therefore, there's only one person that could have properly mediated this covenant for us, and that's Jesus. And then it goes on again, verse 27. He has no need to offer the sacrifices for his own sins because he had none. He never sinned. So he had no sin. He didn't have to make amends for his own sin. He had no sins. And he did this once for all when he offered himself up, when he offered up himself. By offering himself, he functioned not only as a propitiation, as the atoning sacrifice where his blood covers us. That's why we sing about the blood of Jesus. It sounds like, you think about it, it sounds like a weird thing that we, we rejoice over the spilling of blood. But it's not. We rejoice because that blood covers our sin. That blood is truly precious because it, it covers our sins before a holy God. Not only does his blood cover and provide the propitiation, but he also provides the mediation we need as the high priest. So he's better in both cases than the old covenant. The new covenant is far greater because it's not beset with the weaknesses of the previous people. Again, the old covenant was established to ultimately show the need for the new covenant. The Old Testament, the old covenant was established to point to Jesus. So these things were allowed, permitted by God, to be a temporary covering, but they were never sufficient to be the ultimate fulfillment that they needed to have their sins forgiven. Jesus is our ongoing representation. In fact, in the scriptures it says that he always lives to intercede or to make intercession for us. Whereas these other priests, they died. They couldn't make intercession for us indefinitely. Jesus always lives, so he's constantly making intercession for us. What a blessing to have the one who made the sacrifice also be the one who intercedes for us. Because he can say, nope, they're covered. Yep, this one's covered. These are covered when he goes before a holy God. Jesus is the filter that purifies even our impure worship of the Lord. As we still battle our brokenness and our sinfulness, Jesus purifies even that so it is acceptable to a holy God. Point three, this is the last requirement that we're looking at, the location. So now, God's presence, right? So when it comes to worshiping him, we gather together. Now, does that mean that our location now, so in the Old Testament, we see that it was established to be at the temple or the tabernacle. You know, those places, the tabernacle is a temporary one, but the temple was the ultimate place where people were to go to worship God. And we'll look at that in the text. But corporate worship always takes place on God's terms and in his presence. So he determines what is acceptable. And in the old covenant, here's what he decided. Uh, You know, it says in in Exodus that uh, God manifested his presence in the Ark of the Covenant. And then he placed that in the Holy of Holies under the mercy seat, which was in the temple. This is only able to be acceptable and only able to be accessed by the high priest. So there was a very specific place where God allowed his presence to be manifested among the people for, again, a concession so that they could present their offerings to the Lord. So he determines what is acceptable, and this is where he decided to establish it. So in Exodus 25, this is what he says to Moses, There I will meet with you, I will speak with you, about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So in worship, we see that we have to go where God is. Under the old covenant, God was in the temple. So what about the new covenant? Where is God now? Fountain View? Yeah, he is when we're here. God's still in the temple. But now there's been a shift as to where the temple actually is. We see in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
See, when we have trusted in Jesus and the Holy Spirit resides in us, the dwelling place of God, as he prophesied, has moved to be with man. Not only with man, but in us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. God himself indwells us and empowers us and equips us, convicts us. What an incredible gift that is. And an unbelievable gift. The location from the temple, it's still in the temple, but now the temple's here. It's here. It's there. It's inside of us. This is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so when we want to worship him, when we gather together, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 18, um, he says that, um, that where, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am among them. And in this passage, he's talking about um, church discipline method, uh, situation, but the reality still holds true that when two or three of us gather together in the name of Jesus, he's in our presence. This is why earlier I was saying, is the Holy Spirit any less present when we don't have these emotional highs? No, he's just as present when we are gathered as believers together for the purpose of making much of Jesus. He's among us. We don't need to have this invitation to say, please be among us. You are among us. He is among us. And we can celebrate that together. We can expect that because he is. There's nothing that we need to do to make him be among us. He's among us because we've trusted in Jesus. But the location matters. And this is where Jesus flips it on the head in the new covenant. Um, He says uh, in John 4, Jesus said to her, this is the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. She's just asked him, where should we go? Where can we go to worship? Our people say here on this mountain, your people say Jerusalem. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Here's the key. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Spirit and truth. That's, that's different from what we would have expected under the old covenant. So how do we worship in spirit and truth? We worship when we're led by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, grounded in the truth of God's word. And again, this is why us gathering together, being led by the Spirit, and opening the word together is so critical. That's how we worship in spirit and truth corporately. Now individually, we have that responsibility as well to worship in spirit and truth. But when we're individually worshiping in spirit and truth, when we're making it a priority to open the word, to try and commune with God, to be obedient to the convictions the spirit places in our heart, then when we gather together, how much sweeter of a fragrance and an aroma before our holy God will that be? And we have to keep that in mind. But what an incredible shift this is to think about that reality that now we get to worship in spirit and truth, and that the temple, God still dwells in his temple, but the temple has shifted. And so we have these requirements, and this is the incredible thing. All of these requirements, all of them, are fulfilled in Jesus. Every requirement that God has for our worship to be acceptable to him, whether it's propitiation, mediation, or location, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. So at this point, we can look and say, okay, what is it then that makes our worship acceptable to God? Why is it that some broken sinners, that question I asked earlier, why is it that some of those friends that I have, their worship was not acceptable for God? They didn't have Jesus. They weren't filtering their worship through Christ. 
They didn't have Christ, and so their worship was unacceptable to him. And that's true of every single person who doesn't have Christ. If you don't have Jesus, your worship will never be acceptable before God because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's not a popular message in our culture. It's not popular to say that there's one way to salvation. But we need to stand on the word of God over what our culture says. We need to stand on the truth that is revealed in his word. The reality is that it doesn't come down to our sin being too great to overcome. All of our sin has been overcome on the cross. All the sin of all people throughout human history could be covered in the blood that was spilled on Calvary. The reality is the worship of others isn't acceptable because it's not found in Christ. If it's not found in Christ, it's not sincere worship that our Father will accept. So I think what we need to consider then as our so what, the biggest thing to consider, we should be overflowing with gratitude. That's it. We should be overflowing with gratitude because all of the requirements of God are found in Christ, are met in Christ Jesus. So if we want to worship him corporately and individually, then it needs to be about making much of Jesus. It needs to be about gathering in his name. Jesus is the linchpin on which everything else holds. You take that out of the equation and we have, we're a bunch of false worshipers. You remove Christ as the focal point, we're not worshiping God as he deems necessary. We're not meeting the requirements because only Jesus can meet those requirements. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you truly with gratitude in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that for any of us where we don't have that gratitude, that you would stir us up for gratitude for Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Thank you for shedding your blood, Lord Jesus. Thank you for also being the mediator, constantly making intercession for us, covering us giving us your name, giving us your identity, your holiness, and taking on our shame in its place. Lord, thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that when you left, you said it's better for us because now you sent the helper, you sent the paraclete, you sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. So now we have the power within us to overcome any obstacle. We have the power within us to give us hope when everything seems hopeless. Power when we have none confidence to go before a holy God because of your sacrifice, Jesus. And so I pray as your people that we would make that a priority as we gather together that we would be filled with gratitude for what you have accomplished and that we would choose to encourage one another to be grateful for what you have done, Jesus. Thank you for for putting us on this earth at this time in history so that we can look back at the old sacrificial system and see that it pointed to Jesus and see now that our lives are designed to make much of our creator, to make much of you, Jesus. So we ask that we would take hold of the power that you've given to us and make much of you in every circumstance, Lord, and look to you in everything so we might be grateful, give thanks in all circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.